all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 180 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would actually be the Gents Clout episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that in archery... There we go, that sounds much better. In archery, the Gents Clout shooting distance is 180 yards. What's a clout, you ask? Well, a clout turns out to be a flag, and that's the flag you shoot at in clout archery. And so gents, the guys, have to be 180 yards away. I actually decided to look that up instead of just being like, I don't know what the fuck this is that I'm talking about. So there you go. With that, of course, I am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And how are you doing this week? Well, uh, I'm doing okay, although apparently I got stricken with phlegm right when we started the show. But um, other than that, I, I guess we're all right. Well, that's the plant bukkake just reminding you of its presence. It could strike it really at it's any like minute. <laughs> that last little bit, it, you know how like when you've been really sick and you definitely, you know, you feel like you hacked up half your lung and all that kind of stuff. And then you get that one little bit of phlegm, that one little last remnant that just never fucking leaves. And eventually, I don't know how it ever goes away. That's what's there. I've got that just this one little just and every so often I find myself like 20, 30 minutes. I'll just ha ah, and nothing happened. It's just oh, so irritating. Have you ever but, like uh, coughed up so much phlegm like continuously that you thought it would never stop? And in like it, it was so much that you kind of convinced yourself that you were going to die like you accepted fate. <laughs> I have I, I have been there. I have been there and literally so bad like my chest hurts my back hurts from coughing so hard uh i have even given up all hope of ever leaving the bed and have on occasion taken like a jar um or an old cup and just hacked into that from the side of the bed and then just thrown it away immediately in the morning but um so do you keep a jar or a cup by your bed at all times for that no no i've just and like, do you clean when it I out get to that no, dear God, no. Nope, no. If it, if it ends up, I don't care what kind of cup, jar, or whatever that it's, once it's used for that purpose, gone. Disposed of immediately. Um, if I am in that state that I have to get up and go fetch an old cup or an old jar, empty jar, or something like that, yeah, that's it, it's gone. But what if um, it was like in a prized cup, you know, like a Bennigan's cup or something like that? Well then, good luck to the person who finds it. Godspeed. Although... Speaking of people who find things, it turns out that um, we have a new listener to the show. And I didn't find this out until, oh, say, Saturday? No, Friday Friday last week when the show posted. And my aunt, yes, my, my loving aunt. Hi, Aunt Kiki. <clears throat> Hello. She listens to the show. Now, she did say that she doesn't listen every week. But she did happen to tune into last week's show and was very um, <laughs> informed about futons. And she especially took to heart your little joke 
about and that's how you met Jen when she posted that on Facebook now my wife is like what the fuck are you talking about on this damn show of yours and so I had to did she listen to it like did I mean uh, who which your, your mother or not your mother your wife I hope she's not your mother. I had her listen to the opening of the show because, as I explained to my aunt, the stories that I told did not have to do with Jen. And so, but because you made the joke, oh, and that's the day you met Jen. And I didn't say anything. So Jen was like, well, that's why your aunt, because you didn't say anything. I'm like, well, because it was a joke. I assumed I knew it was a joke. Tim knew it was me. I would have figured that most of our listeners, because they're fun and hip and cool and have weird senses of humor like we would know. But um, so Jen was mortified. Oh, she was mortified, huh? She was. She's like, I'm like, Jen, you know, how much futon sex are we having? Why would you think this applies to you? But yeah, I would think that she'd want it to apply to her, you know, like like the conversation could go two different ways. She then she could go, well, how many times, Matt? How many futons have you been on? <laughs> but that's just it. It's we have this beautiful king sized uh, sleep number bed, right? Or right, well, okay, we don't uh, need to go. And as that. the song in the ever <laughs> as the Everclear song says, plenty of room for the real good sex, right? So why would we want to go and? Talk about a futon. You know, clearly this was pre-Jet. So are family gatherings going to be that much weirder now that your aunt knows about your past life? Well. I mean, could she have heard I've worse? I've got goods on her, too. So I suppose we, we could, we, we could you know, we could have kind of a Mexican standoff and see where it goes. But in terms of just this is what happened and now I know she listens, um, I'll just have to make sure that the next time we talk about something like that to shoot her a message and say maybe not this week if you're we're feeling like listening this week maybe not this week wait till next week so yeah funky <laughs> so that was my fun weekend that was the 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 exciting the excitingness of my weekend was <laughs> finding out my aunt listened to my sexual waterbed slash futon exploits Learned about Palomas and my boy Gonzo. Well, out of 179 episodes, I'm glad she chose to start listening on the 179th episode. Well, that's just <laughs> it, though. Is she never told me that she had ever listened. And so, apparently, she's been listening on and off virtually the whole time. She just waited till now to say something. Huh. So, yeah. That ought to be good. Can't wait for the family reunion in November. <laughs> but how was your week, sir? You know, a little bipolar, I will say, Matthew. A, a little bipolar. Not, not as awkward as mine, just bipolar. No, no, nobody. I, may, I make it a point that nobody I work with and nobody in my family member, they don't even know I do this. So <laughs> I, I try to keep them away from this as, as much as possible. No, but... um. So, I mean, the the weekend started off good. I saw uh, Iron Butterfly in concert. Uh, you all know Iron Butterfly, all you hip folks out there. They sing that song, In a Gata de Vida, Honor. You know it. Or, In the Garden of Eden, Honor. Yeah, psychedelic. Cool. So that was groovy. And uh, But then uh, the past week or so, I've been trying to catch up on my Doctor Who 
<laughs> so that's where that came from. <laughs> oh, the Facebook that. post. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, see, I, I I came into Doctor Who. Wait, hold on. I didn't. I came into Doctor Who. Uh, well, no, I guess that still isn't gross until I pointed it out. But anyways, I started watching Doctor Who a little late in the game back in, I think, 2011. I started watching it. And I've been a big fan ever since until the end of Matt Smith. I kind of took a break because I started feeling that Stephen Moffat was, uh, you know, he was telling the same stories over and over again. It's all about Gallifrey and it's all about the Daleks and everything is the end of the war. Just nothing seemed fresh and the characters weren't as rich as they had been before. And Matt Smith went away and Peter Capaldi became the, the 10th Doctor and... So I started uh, getting uh, interested in it again, and uh, I started watching Peter Capaldi's first season uh, about a year ago, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Second season came on, didn't watch it when it first aired, started watching it now, and I I can't, I mean, I, I'm getting into some of the episodes, but I am ready for the new showrunner, because I, the whole idea of having Sonic sunglasses really kills it for me it's so dumb see i have i was an rtd fan all the way rtd yeah russell t davis oh yes 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 and i was devastated when he left the show because for those of you who are not dr whovians russ t davis davies was the original showrunner during the reboot uh, and I think for the first right. up, up until Tenet left, I think is um, actually I want to say, well, it was either right when Tenet left or the year before Tenet left, because he also he also started doing um, the spinoff. Oh, good lord, uh, Torchwood. Yeah. So he, oh. he he had spun off and started doing Torchwood too. And the thing is, is that, and it's pretty, it's really really evident when you start watching Torchwood. Just exactly how much Moffat and Davies actually needed each other, because the the sense of adventure, the sense of fun, all of the really cool ideas and stuff that came out of the first four seasons um, were all Davies, but the amazing storytelling was all Moffat. And when you put those two together, you have great storytelling that is reined in and held together by awesome ideas and execution. But if you have just great, you have all these wonderful ideas, but you don't have good storytelling, then you start kind of wandering all over the place. And then by the time Torchwood ends, you can really kind of see how it's just like, what the hell are they doing? But now with Moffat, where you don't have someone to rein in the good ideas and you just have this, you know, you have good writing, but the storytelling is all off. And even to this point now, now the storytelling starting to suffer because there's been no one to rein him in and he doesn't know how to stop it anymore. And with Matt Smith, I felt the whole time it was like, you know, oh, hey, here's this really great joke, but I'm only going to give you the punchline. Now, Hang with me for 10 to 15 episodes while I explain the joke to you. But I know what it is the whole time. And there's only so many times you can do that. Not to mention, um, I understand that I, you, you needed someone like Matt Smith 
to kind of bridge Tenet, but I just never could get into Matt Smith. Um, and then I like, I like our new doctor, but I just haven't been able to, I'm still stuck at the season eight finale and I never watched any of season nine just because I just, I can't, I don't know. <laughs> it goes downhill. <laughs> and, and it turns out that that seems to have been a good thing. So at any rate, we went way digressed here. How about if we jump into the mail? Should, can we do that? Yeah, I, I think we can. Outstanding. All right, jumping into the mailbox here. And, of course, you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com, as always. And we have no new Twitter followers uh, to speak of this week. But Except your aunt. you are also welcome to follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. But we do have two... Two, count them, two emails. And Diana was kind enough to give us the heads up to make sure, hey, check the email. I told her I would. I have checked it. And here's what she has to say. The subject line is, remember. Hey, movie mavens extraordinaire. I like the use of the word maven. Well done. I just wanted to thank you for bringing the movie Remember to my attention with your review. I was intrigued and adore Christopher Plummer, so I rented it on Amazon. I didn't regret it. It was a slow-moving thriller, so good to watch when too tired to keep up with a fast-paced action movie. The most satisfying part, though, was the twist at the end that totally surprised me. I was left slack-jawed and impressed. Maybe the fact that I hadn't seen the movie Memento helped, too. For mystery fans, it's a must-see, especially readers of mystery novels who shouldn't mind the slow pace. Thanks again for broadening my cinematic horizons. You guys rock. Fangirl forever, Diana Weeks. So thank you very much for sending that. It's, I'm just glad that someone has uh, actually taken what we've said to heart and then applied it while they were watching a movie they hadn't seen yet and then let us know how we did. So what do you think about that there, Tim? Is that pretty cool? Yeah, very much so. I, I'm glad people listen to us and act upon it. Well, so that's uh, good. to be fair, person. We're glad person listens to us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I don't know, Diana, but you might be runner up to our favorite listener. <laughs> As the token of anonymity. <laughs> it's pretty much just token at this point. Uh, let's see here. All right. And then, of course, we also have from Caper Girl Mel, who sends us the subject line of movie suggestion. And yes, that's right. We did give you homework. Yes, us guys. Use guys. Yes, us guys. We gave you homework. Yeah. So, movie suggestion. She says, hey, guys, so the homework's been done, and I researched my two movie suggestions. To be as subjective as possible, I figured I'd compare the two choices with some popular review sites. Um, and, okay, I got to stop here, and here's why. Subjective is when you like it. Objective is when you don't like it, but you do it anyway. I know I'm an asshole. I'm, you are so lovely and everything, but I just wanted to make sure that in this loving environment and this care, uh, this, this care filled space, safe space that we have here that we've built and entrusted that you would know that this comes from love so that you would not make a mistake where someone would be filled with venom and hate and grammar Naziness and then you would be shattered by that. But well, consider it a compliment that he actually corrects you. He doesn't correct me because I think he's just 
given up on me at this point. This is so. true. This is true. I especially love how I want to say was it like episode like original series episode six when I tried to help you get encapsulate from encapsulated. And here we are, 179 episodes, 180 now into the new series, and you still say encapsulated. So suck it, suck it, Matthew. <laughs> I will. I yes, I love how he encapsulates the suckage. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, moving along. <laughs> Way too late. Moving along. All right. I figured I'd compare the two choices with some popular review sites. Here's what I came up with: New Waterford Girl versus Will Be Wonderful. The IMDb rating, 7.1 versus 6.8. Metacritic, 72 versus nil. Rotten Tomatoes, Tomato Meter, 92% versus 71%. Rotten Tomatoes Audience Score, 86% versus 65%. Award wins, 4 versus 2. Award nominations, 10 versus 6. The winner clearly has to be New Waterford Girl. New Waterford Girl has the whole country mouse, city mouse vibe going on, but I think it was told really well in a fun, quirky way. I may be biased because although the setting is in the 70s, I get and love the maritime culture. I hope you enjoyed this piece of Canadianity. And hey, there's something to be said for the fact that it was directed by Alan Moyle of Pump Up the Volume fame. Good luck. I hope you can find it to watch. Mel. A.K.A. Caper Girl Mel. Well, yes, we will do our very best to track it down because it is going to be on the movie list for next week. So, Caper Girl Mel, thank you very, very much uh, for doing that homework for you. I mean, that was, like, ridiculously thorough. I was not expecting that, and that was just awesome. So, that's the that's the mail, and um, I guess... We should move to news, I, I'm thinking, is the general idea, right? Uh, unless we could talk about grammar juices and sucking of them. Well, I, generally, um, when when people say suck it, they are referring colloquially to a penis of some kind. And while we don't necessarily have to refer to that penis or the colloquial penis being sucked... I can refer you to our news of the weird. Would you like to hear the news of the weird? Might as well with that build up. <laughs> From MSN.com by way of the New York Times and Denise Grady. Man receives first penis transplant in the United States. Yes. Now Thomas Manning can tell people to suck it again. A man whose penis was removed because of cancer has received the first penis transplant in the United States at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Massachusetts International? Massachusetts. Oh. Massachusetts, yeah. Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Thomas Manning, 64, a bank courier from Halifax, Massachusetts, went underwent the 15-hour transplant operation on May 8th and 9th. The organ came from a deceased donor. I uh, would sincerely hope so. Uh, quote, I want to go back to being who I was, end quote, Mr. Manning said on Friday in an interview in his hospital room. Sitting up in a chair, happy to be out of bed for the first time since the operation, he said he felt well and had experienced hardly any pain. Uh, quote, we are cautiously optimistic, end quote, said Dr. Curtis L. Citrullo, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon, surgeon and a leader of the surgical team. Quote, it's uncharted waters for us, end quote. 
And apparently this is a um, experimental surgery. And it does go on to talk about um, like the cost of the surgery, how this came about, all of the kinds of things that go in there. It's actually a pretty fascinating article. And as much uh, levity as we're having with the title and everything, um, it's really kind of cool. This guy actually has said that you know he is definitely not hiding behind anonymity. He doesn't feel that people should be ashamed because he wants the the positive exposure because apparently there are cancers like you know testicular cancer and other kinds of cancers that will actually affect male genitalia and he wants that to not be as taboo so that more people will be able to have that which i think is a good it's it's a good thing um although he 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 did say that he hasn't had a chance or he he won't look at it yet <laughs> so <laughs> you would think that you would want to look at something like that beforehand so they can like fix anything like dude i don't think it's supposed to look that way but i guess he's he's a little gun shy so anyway but it's a really cool article it's pretty lengthy but um yeah. you don't want to go weird. into it half cocked you know exactly so it's, but it's, it's kind of weird but in a good way so definitely feel free to check that out again. That was MSN.com. Man receives first penis transplant in the United States. What do you think there, Tim? You know, I will say this. The one reaction you don't want to have when you first see that is, oh. <laughs> oh? <laughs> <laughs> it was more of like a, maybe an ooh. Oh, ooh. Well, see, that's why I'm thinking you would want to look at that sooner Versus later, because if he waits too long, the docs are like, "Sorry, man, <laughs> we we have a very strict return policy about these." Things. For those who are very particular, what if they would let you like sew it on yourself? Because I'm sure it's just all about sewing it on, right? It's like a puppet. I have no idea. Um, just like putting I a have, sock puppet. I have together. actually seen the. Don't finish that sentence. No, no, don't, seriously, don't it, it wasn't. It was a. It was an animated, like a, a very clinically an, animated thing for a sexual reassignment for a male to female and i mean if you're having to have had something like that removed and then however much time has passed and now you're actually reattaching a new one i would imagine that's actually a very involved kind of a surgery so anyway (laughs) but now we have real news we can get to would you like to get to the real news yes all right here we go folks it's the news First up, from me, from htxt.co.za, which happens to be htxt.africa. Hey, there's that. Uh, This comes to us from Clinton Matos. Uh, Stephen King's The Dark Tower begins filming in Cape Town. The film adaptation of Stephen King's The Dark Tower has begun shooting and imagines the surprise when it was found out that it's taking place not in the U.S. or New Zealand, but Cape Town, South Africa. Actress Catherine Winnick, whose role in the movie is not yet clear, posted several images to her Instagram account showing off some locales in Cape Town, as well as what looks to be a trailer with the Dark Tower title printed on it. Winnick is known for her role in the TV show Vikings, and if you had to guess as to who or what she'll play in the film, well... 
that might spoil the story. Uh, the thing is, is that you can't even go off the race because they have started mixing up the race in the casting as well. The main character, Roland Deschaines of Gilead, last of the line of Eld, etc., was white in the book, but he's being played by Idris Elba. Uh, which is interesting. Another star on the film is Matthew McConaughey playing the mysterious man in black, sometimes called Walter Paddock. Um, I know that uh, my old buddy Jeremy from way back in the WoW podcasting days, he is the one who turned me on to The Dark Tower, and I have done all of the books, even up to and including Wind Through the Keyhole. So, um, I I am truly truly interested to see just exactly how this goes um i have no idea how they're going to make this thing work so i am definitely interested in it what about you there tim you know i read the first half of the first book and i loved it so much that i couldn't read anymore (laughs) no i you know i just never actually gotten back to uh finish reading them but I love the story. I'm very familiar with the story, and I've been looking forward to this movie for quite some time. They've been talking about making this for, you know, six, seven years now. So I'm really hoping, I'm really pulling through with these guys. I think it's wonderfully cast, and I think it's going to be uh, directed really well. So it should be fun. I was not paid by uh, Sony to say that, by the way. <laughs> Awesome. All right, man. What do you got for us? All right. I'm going to do two pieces of news. First one, a little bit sad from the HollywoodReporter.com, an article written by Mike Barnes. Madeline LeBeau, Rick's discarded lover in Casablanca, dies at 92. Madeline LeBeau, the luminous French actress who played Yvonne, the jilted lover of Humphrey Bogart's Rick Blaine, who wells up during the patriotic singing of La Marseillaise. Leas, I'm not French. In the immortal film Casablanca has died. She was 92. LeBeau, who later portrayed an actress named Madeline. In another classic, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half from 1963, died May 1st in Estepona, Spain. After breaking her thigh bone, her stepson, documentary filmmaker and environmentalist Carlo Alberto Pinelli told The Hollywood Reporter... LeBeau was wildly believed to be the last surviving cast member from Casablanca. Not too long before making the film, she herself had escaped Nazi-occupied France with her then-husband, actor Marcel Dalio. In the 1942 Warner Brothers drama, Yvonne and Rick had a one-night stand, and when she makes another pass at him while drowning her sorrows at his nightclub, he spurns her and has the bartender take her back to her apartment. Later, she returns to the nightclub arm-in-arm with a German soldier. When a group of German soldiers begin belting out Die Wach am Rhein, Victor Laszlo, played by Paul Henreid, leads Rick's house band in response with a stirring rendition of La Marseillaise. All the patriots in the club, including Yvonne, join in to sing the French national anthem, and they drown out the Germans in a memorable duel. And all quotes there. You can actually read the rest of that article again at thehollywoodreporter.com. The next piece of news here I think is very interesting. This surfaced about a week or two ago. Uh, This article uh, actually says May 3rd. Matt, are you at all familiar with Dragon Ball Evolution, the 
classic film to hate from 2009 based off the famous anime. I, I am familiar with it um, in, in its anathema. But other than, but I've never seen it. Um, I wouldn't even begin to tell you who's in it or anything like that. I just know that it is uh, thoroughly, thoroughly hated. And apparently with good reason. Yeah, this is one of those movies you have to watch Stone to find any enjoyment whatsoever. Especially to make sure it holds your attention. And that is how I watched it. And yet, I don't remember. I think I fell asleep multiple times over at a buddy's house while we both tried to watch this. So... That goes to show you how bad of a movie this is. But this article here via the Dow of DragonBall.com, Dragon Ball Evolution writer apologizes to fans. Ben Ramsey wrote Dragon Ball Evolution, and he asked me to tell you that he is sorry. Where did this sudden apology come from seven years after the movie's premiere in 2009? I contacted Ben to interview him for a book I'm writing called USA DBZ. The book has a chapter dedicated to telling the untold story behind Dragon Ball Evolution, which is Hollywood's live-action adaptation of the series. Dragon Ball Evolution is reviled by fans and has a 14% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Fans of anime and pop culture consider it to be the lowest benchmark by which live-action adaptations of anime and comics are compared. When a bad movie comes out, people say, hey, at least it wasn't as bad as Dragon Ball Evolution. But where did the idea for Dragon Ball Evolution come from? Who wrote it? What was the original intention, and why is it so disappointing to Dragon Ball fans across the world? To find out, I asked Ben for an interview. He replied with an apology, and this is writer Ben Ramsey's apology. Quote, I knew that it would eventually come down to this one day. Dragon Ball Evolution marked a very painful creative point in my life. To have something with my name on it as the writer to be so globally reviled is gut-wrenching. To receive hate mail from all over the world is heartbreaking. I spent so many years trying to deflect the blame. By at the end of the day, it all comes down to the written word on the page, and I take full responsibility for what was such a disappointment to so many fans. I did the best I could, but at the end of the day, I dropped the Dragon Ball. I went on to this project chasing after a big payday, not as a fan of the franchise, but as a businessman taking on an assignment. I have learned that when you go into a creative endeavor without passion, you come out with suboptimal results, and sometimes flat-out garbage. So I'm not blaming anyone for Dragon Ball but myself. As a fanboy of other series, I know what it's like to have something you love and anticipate be so disappointing. I hope I can make it up to you by creating something really cool and entertaining that you will like, and that is also something I am passionate about. That's the only work I do know. Best Ben. End all quotes there. Uh, again, this is an article. This is actually an apology written by Ben Ramsey, uh, sent directly to the Dow of DragonBall.com. And what's very interesting, I've been reading comments not only to this article, but stuff on Reddit and other fan Dragon Ball fan community sites, and it seems like a lot of people accept his apology. Uh, when this movie came out, I mean, maybe even up to a couple years ago, I think people wouldn't accept the apology, because I guess people were still butthurt 
by it for quite some time. Matt, what do you think? Do you think this is a good thing for him to do because people are still hot over this film being as bad as it was? Or do you think it just doesn't really make any sense and he probably would have been better off if he moved on to something else? Honestly, I think because people are so impassioned when it comes to this property um and they have they have good reason to be i mean it's done hugely uh successful manga it's been several different kinds of series anime series as well as anime films uh video countless video games tons of different adaptations and so when you finally get something that could be a live action franchise and then it gets utterly destroyed, people have a reason to be pissed, <clears throat> especially if it puts it in jeopardy of ever actually getting a, a real shot at being a big budget item again. And so uh, the fact that he's owning up to it is good. And honestly, I think he also, I kudos for saying that uh, he, you know, he took a paycheck that he shouldn't have taken. You know, at least he was honest and forthright about it, even if it took him seven years to <laughs> to to fess up. The fact that he even did it quietly, um, more or less, on a uh, you know, on, for a Dragon Ball fan site, I think also lends credence to the sincerity of it. So, yeah, I'm down. I think that's a good thing, and hopefully, the healing can now begin. There you go. Well, awesome. All right. Well, this is going to go ahead and be my last piece of news. I had one other piece of news on uh, some Captain America Civil War stuff, but I think it'll make a really good discussions piece in the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to hold off on that. Um, and now Tim has it so he can read it, too. Uh, so this is my last piece of news here. This is from Time.com by way of Melissa Chan. Bookmaker suspends betting on Tom Hiddleston to be next James Bond. That's right. So you heard that correctly. Just like everybody, you can bet on anything. You can literally bet on anything, including who's going to be the next James Bond. So uh, even though there's no, uh, no one has said anything about a new, Sony, uh, Sony hasn't said anything, MGM hasn't said anything, anybody who owns the rights now where things have reverted and all that kind of stuff with like Warner Brothers or what have you on the whole property of James Bond, nobody said anything, but people are still out there saying, we know who the next <laughs> James Bond's going to be. And here we go. It says, quote, nothing has come close to the recent gamble on Hiddleston, end quote. A British bookmaker has suspended betting on who will play the next James Bond after odds tipped dramatically in favor of actor Tom Hiddleston. An increase in recent bets has pushed the night manager star to be the two-to-one favorite to replace Daniel Craig as the next 007, the Associated Press reports. Coral bookmakers say they suspended betting after a particularly large gamble affected the odds. Quote, there's no smoke without fire, and following the big gamble on Tom Hiddleston in the last 24 hours, we've had no choice but to pull the plug on the market, end quote. Coral spokesperson Nicola McGeady said in a statement to The Guardian. Uh, there's a little bit more here. If you would like to check out the last few lines and last paragraph of the article, I highly encourage you to do so. Again, that's time.com uh, by way of Melissa Chan. So um, what do you think there, Tim? Do, do you think maybe there's some... News coming in the future. Predictions to be made. God, I hope I know so. You, I know. I mean, I know you said you were excited that yeah. if this 
turns out to be a real thing. So. Well, I don't like Daniel Craig as Bond. I mean, he obviously doesn't care you shut about your the character. mouth. I'm just oh, kidding. well, I mean, he he's already said he will not do another Bond movie unless he gets paid a shit ton of money. So I don't want to see him play Bond if he doesn't no, like I the know. character. You, you, know? you, you have a legitimate gripe in that department when it comes to Daniel Craig. I just really really loved the reinvention of the character that daniel craig brought. yeah but you know i would like to see somebody more suave more charming and more likable and to me i think tom hiddleston checks off all those marks he's he seems like a cool guy very nice guy and he's never let me down in the acting department i've been watching uh the bbc amc series the night manager and yeah he doesn't play a james bond character but he is kind of a covert spy in a way i guess mm-hmm. and he he does it i mean he, it's very natural to watch him do that type of thing and he does sex scenes real well he does shirtless scenes <laughs> so well i've seen his ass more than i think any other actor in movies so you know i think he he'd be comfortable with that Right on, man. All right. Well, that is the end of my news, so bring us home on the news, sir. All right. I've got quite a few pieces of short news here. Matt, I know you've been wondering why we haven't seen more penises in movies, and that is because it is very difficult to show a penis in a movie without the MPAA breathing down your neck or or basically axing the usage of that penis altogether. Uh, via CinemaBlend.com, the incredibly strange rules the MPAA has about penises, according to director Nicholas Stoller. Uh, this is an article written by Eric Eisenberg, but I'm not going to read the whole article, only the quote of Stoller's. And Stoller directed Forgetting Sarah Marshall. We all remember seeing what's-his-name's Wang Chung in that movie where he's flopping it around. Well, the interviewer here sat down with Stoller during a press junket, I guess, for Neighbors Part 2, Sorority Rising. And they asked him about his run-ins with the MPAA, and he says this, quote, I never had any issues with MPAA. If it's R-rated, you can basically do anything. You just can't show a wrecked penis. This is the thing with the penis. He holds out his hand with fingers curled and slowly flattens his palm. It's like R-R-R-R-N-C-17, including flopping. If you want to flop, You flop left to right, not up and down. That's an actual thing. The two movies that I've noticed that have erect penises that are R are the South Park movie and Scary Movie, but the penises are detached. You can't see them attached to a body, end all quotes there. So if you want to show an erect penis, because that is so important in movies, if you got to go erect, you can't see it attached. Matt, does this clear things up for you a little bit? I know you come back to me just saying, "Why I, so many butts? Where's the peen?" Yeah, I, I, I know that ever since my mother coined the phrase, at least in our house, Jean Claude Van Butt, that <laughs> I, I had to find out the mystery of why no full frontal for guys if they were going to do full frontal for chicks. So this is helpful, I guess. So now we're going to see a lot more dildos in movies? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right, next up, this should get a nice little response from you, Matt. No pressure. Via Deadline Hollywood, Atari Classic Arcade Games, Centipede, and Missile Command 
heading for the big screen, are headed for the big screen, I should say. This is written by Mike Fleming Jr. This is an exclusive. Emmett Furla, Oasis Films, has closed a deal to partner with Atari to produce and finance two feature films based on Centipede and Missile Command, the classic arcade game properties. Randall Emmett and George Furla will produce, and Atari, Stephen Belfonte, Wayne Mark Godfrey, and Robert Jones will be executive producers on the film projects. Both of the shooter games launched in 1980 during what was considered a golden age of video arcade games. In Centipede, players battled against a... We all know what Centipede is. We don't have to go through this technical mumbo-jumbo. And Missile Command is the one where you're the little dot shooting at the other stuff to make sure they don't, you know, fall onto your shit that you're protecting. And basically Atari 101 when it comes to the shooting of centipedes and the shooting of whatever. Matt, what do you think about this? Are you jazzed about seeing a Missile Command and Centipede movie? Are there other Atari games that you would like to see adapted in place of Centipede or and Missile Command? Yar's Revenge. Not even fucking around. Not even joking around. Which if one's, we could which get one's that one? Yar's Revenge, I would be a happy, happy camper. It's actually like the most popular Atari video game, Atari 2600 video game. And it was developed by the same guy who developed E.T., which was like the least (laughs) popular Atari 2600 game. And contrary to popular belief was not the reason the video game crash occurred. I hate it when people say that. Now, if you want to say that it was the straw that broke the camel's back, that's fine. But even then, that's not the programmer's fault. That was AT, that was AT&T. That was Atari's return policy's fault. So, anyway. But yeah, Yar's Revenge. It is one of the coolest uh, video games of that era. Really cool, colorful uh, graphics. Um, interesting story concepts that could really and truly be expanded. Neat space story. Aliens. You got the whole nine yards. Uh, all that cool, cool stuff. Um, but I just, I don't really see where you could go. I mean, I could kind of see Centipede, I guess, but Missile Command just seems like a stupid, you know, space movie. So, I don't know. It's weird. Just as long as they don't have fucking Adam Sandler and them, I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, I think this would have been cool if Pixels never came out. <laughs> Maybe they'll call it Centipede, what Pixels should have been. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, and also if I had to choose what Atari game they should make into a movie, I wonder why they haven't made E.T. yet. Seems like that would be such a good idea. It was such a great game. So meta. We'll make a, we'll, we'll make a movie off a of video game off of a movie. <laughs> that has nothing to and do then, with the movie and it was originally a video game. It'll, And then it'll get a video game after it becomes a movie again. It's the vicious cycle, man. It's the vicious cycle that is culture today. Uh, But yeah, if you're interested, again, at that Deadline article that I poorly (laughs) quoted a little bit, Atari Classic Arcade Game Centipede and Missile Command headed for Big Screen, written by Mike Fleming Jr. Next up, something I've kind of sort of noticed via Observer.com, movie studios are adding 10-second teasers to trailers because of lazy millennials. That is right. This is an article written by John Bonazzo. 
and it says this. If you watched the trailer for the upcoming Tom Hanks film Inferno, which was released this week, you may have noticed that a short teaser played before the actual trailer. This preview was basically a sped-up, eight-second version of the trailer with shots of Mr. Hank and his co-star Felicity Jones, followed by the Inferno title card. The full 90-second trailer, which actually gave plot details about the film, only played after its initial tease. The double trailer has become a trend in Hollywood of late. The new Jeff Bridges film, Hell or High Water, uses the same tactic, but why? Gray Mumford, Senior Vice President of Communications at CBS Films, brought some clarity to the issue this morning on Twitter. After sharing the trailer for Hell or High Water, he revealed the studio's thinking. When Alex Billington, who runs movie news website First Showing pushed him on this line of thinking, Mr. Munford explained that consumers raid millennials only paused scrolling to watch a video for an average of three seconds. Because of this, studios want to engage customers or consumers as quickly as possible, hence the fast-forwarded trailer. Mr. Billington wasn't convinced, calling this theory obsessive micromanagement of attention that still might not result in any real interest. It's not my favorite thing either, Mr. Munford admitted, but the data backs it up, so expect the practice to keep spreading for the foreseeable future. End all quotes there. You know, I think this is just catering to millennials. I mean, people will only do that. People will only watch three seconds of it if you keep catering towards that. You know what I mean? And if they're not interested in it, they're not going to pay attention to it anyways. So why try to feed them a sped up, flashy, semi-catchy, eight second pre-trailer when they might not even be interested in the movie anyways? I don't know. Matt, do you have any thoughts on this at all? Um, no. I, no, actually I don't. <laughs> I, I have nothing to add. I have no response to that. <laughs> well, good, because I'm going to mention my last piece of news via paleofuture.gizmodo.com. Anne Wren wrote a guide for Hollywood on how to make pro-capitalist movies, written by Matt Novak. I found this very interesting. Today, Anne Rand is perhaps best known as your virgin cousin's favorite author to fawn over during Thanksgiving dinner. But back in the 1940s, Rand was better known for helping root out communists in Hollywood. She testified to Congress and even wrote an entire pamphlet about how to make their movies as pro-America as possible that was sent to movie producers, or at least Rand's version of America. During his great communist witch hunt of the 1940s and 50s, Congressman Joseph McCarthy infamously turned his eye to Hollywood. McCarthy sought to purge Tinseltown of any possible speck of pinko influence, and an organization of conservatives, activists, known as the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, was more than happy to name names of alleged communists working in Hollywood and provide any other assistance necessary. They even had Rand write up a guide for the movie industry. 
Titled The Screen Guide for Americans, the pamphlet was distributed in 1947. Michigan State University has a copy of that guide, which advises producers on everything from spotting communists' subversion in their writers to the practical advice of how to avoid celebrating, quote, the common man, end quote. As Rand explains, glorifying, quote, the common man, end quote, is, quote, communist doctrine, end quote, which, quote, preaches the reign of mediocrity, end quote. I'm not making this stuff up, I swear, says the writer of this article. Um, And then they go on to say that below they pulled out some interesting quotes from the document, such as, The purpose of the communists in Hollywood is not the production of political movies openly advocating communism. Their purpose is to corrupt our moral premise by corrupting non-political movies, by introducing small casual bits of propaganda into innocent stories, thus making people absorb the basic premises of collectivism by indirect and implication. That's a bit of mouthful right there, end all quotes. Yeah, that kind of sounds like uh, pop culture nowadays, in a way, (laughs) that some people would say. That's kind of like reality TV. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Are you a Fountainhead fan? Are you an Ayn Rand fan? Do you like communism in such a way that you might be offended by Ayn Rand's statements? No, I think that um, given the context of what was happening back then and a lot of the hysteria and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that uh, there are some interesting thoughts and stuff, and some of the things that she espoused were um, sometimes oversimplified, but in other ways, I think were you know pretty interesting in in terms of kind of defining the conservative ideals of the era but in a lot of other ways she was rather hypocritical and in some extreme ways kind of like here she was a little bit like glenn beck so that's not good i guess (laughs) and that's my news awesome all right well then that is going to bring us to three squared Three Squared. All right. So this week on Three Squared, we're going to be doing our fav- our picks for our favorite '80s movie theater trailers and i am going not really in uh order of it's not chronological order just in order of the way that um i thought about these movies so the very first movie i ever got to see in the movie theater was return of the jedi and i was so incredibly stoked for this film um i had I, I'm sure I'd probably been to a movie theater before then, but uh, this is the one that settles into my mind. I can still remember when uh, my dad took me to the theater and we got the popcorn and everything, but I um, had been kind of introduced to Star Wars because my mom and my dad were into the Star Wars thing at the time and had seen some commercials and stuff like, you know, Empire Strikes Back kind of things or whatever. But the first real trailer 
that I can remember seeing in full on TV was the was Return of the Jedi. And so I just had to see this movie, and my dad took me to see the movie. And so because of that, it had to be on the list. It really wasn't, I really wasn't trying to do a cop-out thing, but it means a lot to me. So it's on the list. Return of the Jedi in 1983. Uh, moving along to one of the movies that I felt truly defined not just my youth, but even kind of informed my preteen years and um, just something that uh, I really wished I could be as cool as these guys. is from 1988, License to Drive. Yes, the Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, let's take the car out for a spin movie. What could go wrong, right? As Corey Haim is trying desperately to impress this girl that he likes and uh, wants to take the sports car out. And then, of course, shenanigans ensue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fantastic, uh, fantastic, fun movie, completely 80s. Um, everything you think of, especially as it leads, you can really see how things were gearing up for kids in terms of tood. Everything had lots of tood, man. The nineties were just around the corner and it was going to be, we had to go from just radical to awesome and just everything you needed. And so, I don't know. I just really enjoy watching this trailer. It's everything that made the eighties great. And yet at the same time, it's, kind of a decent trailer to boot so there's that uh and then last but not least for me is police academy Four: citizens on patrol uh this was actually the first and let's see here this is from 1987 and was actually the first police academy film i got to watch because well i mean the other ones were like rated r and everything and i was just turning 10 had a religious family and so they wouldn't let me see R-rated movies then. So I had to wait till I was a little older to get caught up. But I still got to see this one. And um, I saw the trailer for it, oh gosh, on TV or probably watching another movie or something like that. But I do recall seeing this and going, holy crap. I want to see this movie. But for me, I wanted to see the movie because of Bobcat Goldthwait. I didn't, I could have cared I don't. I could not have cared less about uh, Stephen Gutenberg and you know Michael Winslow and stuff like that. I it was Bobcat Goldthwait that had my attention, and so and I and I was not disappointed. Now this movie is clearly not a fantastic movie, and had I known better, the trailer probably should not have moved me as it did, especially going back and reviewing it for this. But I just you know was my first foray into this franchise and I got to go see it at the theater and everything and it was because of this trailer those talented graduates are back in police academy I want to welcome all of you to Citizens on Patrol. Citizens on Patrol. The police academy has offered to train you citizens. You don't think I'm fast enough anymore do you? To better protect yourselves. Do we get to pack heat? Attention all cars, attention all cars. Mahoney. Gee, I love saying that. Jones. High Tower. Sweet Chun. Zed. And Tackleberry. Please! 
Good idea. From now on, by land. Man, you have the right to remain silent. Who's gonna save me? By sea or by air. There's no escaping justice. Gentlemen, may I see your license and registration, please? I can blast them out of the sky, sir. Not yet. I should give them a warning shot first. Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. Now be careful, because a 44 Magnum has quite a <laughs> kick. See it in your neighborhood while you still have one. These are my picks. Return of the Jedi from 1983, License to Drive from 1988, and Police Academy of Four, Citizens on Patrol from 1987. What do you got there, Tim? All right, so this one was a little bit more difficult from, for me. I had to take a different approach to picking my three favorite 80s movie trailers. Reason being, I am not, yes, I know, a child of the 80s, nor am I a child of the 70s or 60s that some of you might think. <laughs> no, I was born in the late 80s, and I the only time I've ever seen these trailers were never at the movie theater, but in passing uh, on VHS. And so I've become familiar with them over time by way of YouTube, and again, old VHS tapes, and by reference. And I will come out front and say that I haven't seen any of these movies except one, and that will be the first one that I talk about. It is from 1983, five years before I was born, not quite the worst Superman ever made, but definitely not good either. Superman 3 from 1983. Yes, the Superman featuring Richard Pryor. Yes, Richard Pryor has come to Metropolis, says the trailer. He's the best con man and the world's greatest computer genius. It's ridiculous. I mean, the trailer is ridiculous. It just really makes you want to see this movie because Richard Pryor is the selling point. Not Superman, but Richard Pryor is. They're really wanting money. They're wanting a big box office. So Richard Pryor is the guy to deliver the comedy as well as the main bad guy, apparently, or the, you know, the deliver the device that creates the big boss at the end. And so that's what he is. He's the goofy slapstick Lois Lane stand-in. But it's Richard Pryor. That's right. He's the best con man and the world's greatest computer genius. And as he falls, he turns the ultimate computer into the ultimate weapon. Oh, yeah. And by halfway into the trailer, you still haven't seen Superman until... Superman! Yes! Oh, yes! By the way, folks, this is a Superman movie. You're probably sick and tired of Superman by now. And we hate to break it to you, but this is a sign for shittier Superman. Superman movie actually yeah that's kind of sad there hasn't been a great Superman movie since then that's depressing but back to the trailer <laughs> they make it a point to talk to hype up Richard Pryor's appearance until more than halfway through and then oh yeah Clark Kent oh yeah Superman's there to save the day oh yeah but Richard Pryor Bo but Richard Pryor's in it and so yeah I mean I needless to say I've seen this movie as a kid I was entertained by it because it was something different little did I know it was not actually a great movie and I haven't really seen it since I was a kid 
in full. So it might actually be fun to go back and revisit this movies for Did It Age Well, even though I think we all know what the answer might be. The next film I would like to talk about is one that I've never seen, but I am very much familiar with this trailer. I remember seeing it on VHSs back in the day. I remember seeing it on many lists and many commentaries of movies that you should not watch. And if you don't believe us, watch this. And they usually show you this trailer. It is for the 1987 film, one year before I was born, so I should have been in that age bracket. The Garbage Pail Kids movie. Yes, it's about those ugly, foul-looking, foul-sounding, I'm sure foul-smelling children that are created by green mud that is somehow in a garbage can i believe these are this is based off a book of some sort i don't know i didn't think it was worthy to really go into full research mode for garbage pail kids the movie but i'm pretty i think they're based off a series of little kid books but you watch the trailer and the garbage pail kids themselves are absolutely atrocious and absolutely frightening it would put the fear of God into a person who took a hit of LSD and decided to watch not only the movie, but even the trailer alone. The fear of God would be put into them because it's frightening watching this sober. The movie, surprisingly, wasn't nominated for a lot of stuff for the 1987 Razzie Awards. Believe it or not, I can't, I'm kind of surprised it's not as bad as Leonard Part 6. It kind of makes me want to watch it now. But it did get a Razzie nomination for the Garbage Pail Kids rap. And I am definitely familiar with the Garbage Pail Kids rap. If you are not familiar with the Garbage Pail Kids rap, go on YouTube at the end of the show and listen to that shit because it is god-awful. And in that rap, you will get a sneak peek at these god-awful-looking puppet kids, you know, with these suits that I think sad little people are in. Highly recommend you checking that out. Just not on LSD. And then finally, not much can be said for 1982's The Pirate Movie other than the brief synopsis, the brief summary I will give to you right now via moviephone.com. The Pirate Movie, rated PG, plot summary. Mabel, played by Christy, Mick Nicole yearns for true love. Unfortunately, she has to be knocked out to find romance. While attending a pirate festival, she falls for the dashing Frederick, played by Christopher Atkins, who puts on a swashbuckling sword-fighting clinic. The two are supposed to sail away together, but Mabel is left on the pier. She gets in a boat to follow him and winds up on a desert island where she gets knocked unconscious and is propelled into the past, dreaming of pirates and, of course, romance. This is a movie I have not seen. Again, I am very familiar with the trailer for it. You watch it and the summary doesn't even come out in the trailer. Like... The trailer is filled with lovers and a very 80s love story, kind of cliche love story happening there. And it's all set to really bad 80s music. 
like original 80s music that was created for this movie since it's a musical yet it the backdrop is pirates and swashbuckling pirates and you never get the idea that she is dreaming of all this that this is actually set in present day 1982 so the trailer is way out there it's very incredibly disjointed and it doesn't set up the movie for actually what it is i'll let you be the judge of it for yourself the pirate movie from 1987. Only one movie will have this sound. The Pirate King! The Pirate King! And only one movie will have Christy McNichol and Christopher Atkins singing. Laughing, leaping, and swinging their way through time in the biggest, most original movie in a hundred years, The Pirate Movie. Pirates? You mean like walking in the plank, buried treasure, hack, flash off with his head and the Jolly Richard and everything? Rid me of these villains and Mabel's hand is yours. The Pirate Movie. It's more than a musical. Man, I'm older than the Beatles, but I'm younger than the Rolling Stones. I'm older than the Beatles, but he's younger than the Rolling It's more than an adventure. And it's definitely more than a pirate movie. I want a happy ending. Pirate movie. It's more movie than ever before. So my choices for favorite 80s movie theater trailers were Superman 3 from 1983, the Garbage Pail Kids movie from 1987, and then finally, the Creme de la Crap, 1982's The Pirate Movie. Alright, well... That brings us to the end of Three Squared, and our next bonus segment, which will appear next week, is I'm the Only One Who Liked It. We haven't actually done one for quite a while now, so it ought to be fun to do one of those. And without further ado, I believe it is now time for the movies, is it not, sir? Yes. Awesome. Here we go, folks. It's the news! And this week's movies are 2015's The Program, not to be confused with the college football one from 1993, which I may or may not have done, Son of a Gun, and Money Monster. What do you want to do first there, sir? Hmm, how about The Program? All right, Program, The Program, 2015's The Program. This is a uh, British-French biographical drama film. It's about Lance Armstrong, directed by Stephen Frears, and stars Ben Foster and Chris O'Dowd. Um, also has 
appearances from Dustin Hoffman uh, and Jesse Plemons, some, along with a few other people you may or may not have heard of or seen. Ben Foster is actually the uh, gentleman playing Lance Armstrong. Chris O'Dowd is playing David Walsh, a journalist who just can't let go. All right, now, I would like to state that this movie is very, very, very well acted. Very well acted. Um, I thought that... um, I've never seen Chris O'Dowd or Ben Foster play such um, gripping characters. Truly, I I thought it was very well done. Um, the writing, subsequently the supporting writing for these characters in order to bring these performances, very good. Um, and I believe that the work that they did with the director to get these characterizations was also spot on. But that's kind of it um this is literally a rehash of virtually everything everybody already has known about lance armstrong up to this point um including the jaw clenching interview from like literally from going from obscurity to fame to explosive cancer recovery and all the seven tour de france wins to I didn't, you know, I've never tested negative or I've never tested positive for drugs, right? He didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He said, uh, you know, I've never tested positive for drugs. All the way to the nail or to, to his jaw-clenching interview with Oprah, right? Um, all this stuff is, it. they never really explored what made Armstrong Armstrong. They just basically rehashed everything that everybody already knew and put it in a dramatic form. So that when you have other people trying to actually move the story forward and support the story, like Jesse Plemons, uh, for example, um, or even Lee Pace, Right, uh, plays Bill Stapleton and Jesse Plemons plays uh, Floyd Landis, uh, more of the crew, the biking crew, and they, uh, and so it's, you just kind of feel like all these people are just stand-ins to just make the story move forward in terms of plot devices instead of actually really digging deep and letting the story shine through the characters. Um, so I, I really didn't like the movie, but I really liked the characters and I loved the acting. So I am going to give this one, uh, 2.75 out of five. I truly can't say that I enjoyed the film overall, but it's certainly better than okay. And I think that a lot of people will probably, um, find less flaws in the story than I did. But I mean, the acting is just damn spot on. So there you go. What do you got, Tim? Yeah, critics are actually pretty harsh on this movie or or have been awfully harsh on this movie. And I, I agree with them on certain aspects and I absolutely do not agree with them on other aspects. And the aspects that I don't agree with them on is that they say, or a lot of people say that this is just a bad movie. They can't get over the idea or get over the fact that the movie doesn't delve deep enough And so they go ahead and just write off the movie, oh, it's just not good. It's not good. It's not good because they didn't do that. There's no meat to it. It's not good. 
But honestly, the movie is entertaining. It's well acted and it's well produced, but the story and the characterizations just needed more depth and and bite to it. It's directed by Stephen Frears. He did Philomena and the upcoming Florence Foster Jenkins that already has great reviews with uh, Meryl Streep. He's done a number of other movies that we've all seen and we all loved. So, it, it you know, he did a good job. The directing and the producing isn't the issue. The acting definitely isn't the issue. It's the writing. And even the writing isn't all that bad. You know, so again, I'm with and not with the critics in saying that it's absolutely not a bad film, but it would have been better. It would have been great to watch something with bite to it. Yes, it's a rehash of what we all know already, but it is still entertaining to watch. So I give this one 3.25 out of 5. I think if you just enjoy movies in general, honestly, I think this this would be a great contender for a TNT movie, you know, like Rudy. Rudy is a good movie, but it's not a fantastic movie. But if you catch it on TNT or TBS or on whatever channel it is now, you sit down and watch it. Shawshank Redemption, it's a great movie, but whenever it's on TNT, you gotta watch it. So, I think this falls in the line of being one of those syndicated type of movies. So, the program, 3.25 out of 5, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Right on, man. Where do you want to go from there? Son of a Gun. Son of a Gun, alright. 2014 Australian crime thriller film. Uh, written and directed by Julius Avery. It stars Brenton Thwaites, Ewan McGregor, Alicia Vikander, and Jacek Komen. Um, alright, so we're following the young JR who finds himself in, the, uh, in, in, uh, in jail for um, basically six months, you know, whatever, petty crime kind of shit. And he eventually comes across um, Brendan Lynch through some, you know, just some weird interactions and stuff. He find, he, he comes across uh, a guy by the name of Lynch, played by Ewan McGregor. Some further things happen that cause Lynch to kind of step in for JR, and they decide to kind of help each other out. Lynch says, look, I'm going to protect you. I kind of, you know, whatever. I like you, blah, blah, blah. I'll protect you. But you have a short sentence. So when you get out, you got to work for me and do the things that I need done while I'm out. Or until I get out. And JR is like, yeah, sounds like a plan. Whatever. Um, very quickly, this turns into a prison escape uh, heist caper film. And who who can you trust? Who's doing what? Why, you know, people with attitudes, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, we've got a little bit of, uh, you know, not a love triangle, but definitely a love interest thrown in there for good measure. Um, this is a film, I, I don't know if any, if you're familiar with the film. I want to say it's 2006. I'm going to see this here. We'll just type it up here. And uh, see what happens. 2001, The Heist. Uh, it's, a cr- it's, it's a crime film. It's directed by David um, uh, Marnet. Or Marnet, I guess, maybe. Is this the Bruce Willis movie? No, 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 no. no. It's uh, Gene Hackman, Danny DeVito, and Delroy Lindo. 
If you've never seen this movie, you will probably find that Son of a Gun is far more original. (laughs) If you have seen this movie, then you're going to be like, oh, look, this is just a 20-somethings version of Heist. Now, that's not a knock against Son of a Gun. It's not a knock against Son of a Gun. It just goes to show that there are certain movies that you can... Uh, you can kind of take a, you know, a, a classic plot line and take out a few pieces, put something in, not necessarily interchangeable, but you can take out a few key pieces, plug in some different ones, and while the movie structure is the same, the presentation can go up or down. And so I would say that while I prefer Heist, mainly because I feel that Gene Hackman is a much better actor overall, um, I liked what this movie brought to the table. Um, even though it's almost exactly the same movie, um, it does have its own strengths. It's definitely more of a, um, it's definitely more of a who do you trust kind of a thing instead of a purposely everyone is clearly trying to outsmart everyone else which is kind of more of the theme of heist versus what we have here in son of a gun so it allows for a little bit more character development and allows for some uh good acting to come out at the end of the day um it's it's tried and true i won't say tired but it's a tried and true plot it works and it's definitely got its moments there so i give this one 3.5 out of 5 um although if you haven't seen it i would definitely give heist from 2001 a try what do you got there tim you know, this is actually a pretty damn good movie. It's solid and ultimately satisfying at best. And there's only really a couple of drawbacks to it. The casting of the kid, Britton Thwaites, and the characters J.R., I thought Britton looked the part. I just don't think he necessarily acted the part. He didn't bring the character any anything to the table uh when you compare him to alicia vikander what she brought to the table and especially what uh ewan mcgregor his character what he brought brennan lynch uh to the table and i thought the casting of the kid again was a major drawback because the relationship with both the girl and ewan mcgregor doesn't work and their story elements don't really fully pay off as a result of the characters not really meshing together. You know, and, and so I, I honestly think that the film, because of all this, the film and the story loses its poignancy. It's characterization. The characters are the reason why you care about the relationship. And how the movie and how the story is built and told, you have to care about the young guy's relationship with the woman, uh, Tasha, Alicia Vikander. And you have to care about his relationship with, with Ewan McGregor's character. Because at the end of the movie, there is a twist. And when that music cue happens, because with all twists like this one, it becomes like a who's going to backstab who heist type of movie. There is a music cue, and this movie has a very obvious music cue that's trying to uh, evoke some sort of emotion because those relationships aren't there, and again, the young guy, Brenton, playing JR, he's the backbone of these relationships. He's the middle guy. He's the focal point. Since he doesn't bring anything to the table, you're ultimately left with 
yeah, you know, it's good music. Like, it was a good idea, but it just didn't succeed. And to me, that was just a major drawback. And unfortunately, what I thought could have easily been a 4.75, 4.5 movie is now a 3.5 out of 5 movie. Uh, I thought it was well-directed. I even think this is the director's first movie or one of his first feature-length movies. So props to him for... Uh, for pulling it off as much as he did, or as, for, as well as he did, I should say. And I really hate knocking this one young guy, uh, Britton Thwaites, but to me it all just came down to him. So 3.5 out of 5, son of a gun for me. Right on, right on. All right, well, that is going to leave us with Money Monster, 2016 American crime thriller, crime thriller drama film directed by Jodie Foster and stars... George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Jack O'Connell, Dominic West, uh, Catronia Balfa, and Giancarlo Esposito. All right, so what we have here is basically a guy who is like a... um, uh, Who's the guy that that used to throw the, the... like the bowls at the screen and stuff like that. I don't, I can't think of his name, but, uh, he was a meme on, uh, on Reddit for quite some time. But anyway, so this is like a stock show, right? And George Clooney is the host of said stock show. And the show is called Money Monster, right? And so he had recently said, oh, you guys need to, you know, everybody should like totally invest in this company, blah, 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 and let's see what's up and da, da, da. And then the company abruptly turns around and loses $800 million. Um, and it bankrupts just thousands of people. And unfortunately for poor Mr. Gates, played by George Clooney, um, Kyle Budwell, who's played by Jack O'Connell, um, decides to take matters into his own hands to get answers. Just to get get answers. And so he comes in, busts on set on live TV, and says, at gunpoint, here, put this on. And it's a bomb with a, it's a vest with a bomb on it. And he has the detonator covering Clooney's kidney, right? So he was smart enough to kind of plan this out so that if the, the, the snipers and the SWAT people are like, hey, we can totally disarm it, but we have to shoot. <laughs> We have to shoot the victim and hope he survives. So it creates this kind of a dynamic with, oh, what are they going to do? Let's try and get this stuff. And then, of course, at the same time, all this guy's like, I just want answers. You're going to give me the answers that I need. And so that's basically the idea. And then, of course, you know, how does something like this happen, right? How, you know, and the movie explores that while at the same time trying to redeem Gates, not as because he was a bad guy or someone who was paid off, but to show that he is a human being, right? And that he does care. At the same time, trying to get past um, Budwell's stuff and make him human as well. And there was a Denzel Washington movie several years ago. John Q, I think was his name. And this is a guy who basically is just trying to get a transplant for his son and he goes to extreme measures to get the transplant taken care of for you know for his son and holds a doctor up at gunpoint in the hospital it's 
kind of like the, this movie is the financial version of that movie. And so the thing is with Money Monster is that you it's almost like they just purposely set this movie up so that no real good can come of it. And I just constantly felt myself asking, how much more will they pile on? Oh, that much more. And so the story, and hey, you know, not all movies need to have a happy ending, right? Sometimes the bad guy wins. It's, you know, I, I get all that. And, and, you know, real life is messy and everything like that. So it's not that I felt that this movie, like, lacked escapism or anything like that. No, I mean, I bought into the plot. I bought into the acting. And, of course, you've got uh, Julie Roberts in here as, like, his director, onset director or whatever. Everybody does a good job in terms of the acting and stuff like that. What I felt was the problem was I felt that and this, I think, is lands more or less squarely on Jodie Foster, is I felt like she let the story be purposely heavy-handed instead of letting the story organically just do what it was going to do. And that, and again, it could still have a good ending or a bad ending. It could still be realistic or fantastical or whatever. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not trying to bash it just because the movie is dark. I'm bashing it is because it's just so in-your-face heavy-handed. There's one, and for an example, um, spoiler alert here because I really think it keys in on everything. There's one point where they actually are able to connect Kyle with his girlfriend or his fiance or something like that. And she's pregnant, right? And so in, instead of being supportive when she finds out that he's lost all their money... Um, instead of trying to at least understand or try, I mean, she just like, just goes off the goddamn handle and makes the situation a hundred times worse. And it's like, did you, did you need to write that in seriously? Um, and so again, it's like Jodie Foster was just letting this story dictate its heavy handedness instead of being able to have it come about a little bit more organically. So, um, all that being said, I give this one 3.5 out of 5. It's a very decent movie, very decent thriller, um, and it's really starting to show how many movies I've seen when I keep finding all these parallels, like in the last couple of weeks, with other movies that I've seen. So, anyway, there you go. Bring us home, Tim. So, Jodie Foster has directed a handful of movies, and I don't... Off the top of my head, I don't think she's directed a movie quite like this before, so I don't think she's used to, or she hasn't really made a movie that builds tension over time. The movie, like what Matt was talking about with letting the tension build organically, a lot of it just kind of feels forced. And a lot of the forcefulness comes into the form of staginess, and that comes into the form of the secondary characters and their dialogue. Like, whenever a main event has to occur, which is brought upon, like, the cops that are outside, like, oh, we need a, we need a sniper in the catwalk, and they do the couple shots of the sniper creaking over to the catwalk, obviously nobody can see him up there. Yes, they probably could. You know, just a lot of, like, inorganic stuff like that, which we've seen before, and it's just not handled properly. And, I mean, that's just one issue, but there are others as well. And, again, a lot of the staginess and organic feeling happens with the secondary characters, especially. 
Money Monster is straightforward entertainment that kept me engaged from beginning to end. Full disclosure, Money Monster is a Sony movie. Normally with Sony movies, employees get free screenings. However, I wasn't able to make the screening. So I paid $9.50, $9.75 to go see it Saturday morning. And I thought it was money well spent. You know, like I didn't feel like I wasted money. I actually enjoyed it. It was a good way to pass 98 minutes, I suppose. I I guess more criticisms would be the setups of major plot developments do feel stagey and obvious, but the core performances are good and engaging. Julia Roberts and George Clooney, since she plays the director of the Money Monster, Money, Money, of the Money Monster show, George Clooney's character is always wearing an earpiece, so she is feeding him information. She is talking to him. And so it it makes for a nice dynamic between the two. Yes, the guy with the gun, what do you call him? The money monster terrorist or whatever you want to call him. The The guy who was wronged by George Clooney's character. Yes, he was, I mean, I don't understand why do these, if it's set in New York, characters like this have to have that thick New York accent. They really lay it on thick with the New York stuff just to try to get uh, sympathy points, maybe. I don't know. All that stuff felt inorganic, so I'm glad, Matt, you brought up that word. The movie does feel inorganic and stagey, but like I said for the last time, it's a straightforward entertainment that kept me engaged from beginning to end so i do give this one three out of five i do recommend it very good all right well then that is the end of the movies next week's movies are new waterford girl hush and from fresh from the theaters the nice guys hush is actually available on netflix nice guys of course is in the theater and um well we'll be tracking down new waterford girl And so, without further ado, I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. Also, don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to George Clooney, I get to say this. It's not about an opening weekend. It's about a career. Building a set of films you're proud of? Period. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. 
Thanks again for listening.